Welcome to Don't Despair, a podcast dedicated to the Genesis role-playing game published by Fantasy Flight Games. Each episode, we take a deep dive into higher-level concepts of Genesis to help players and game masters get the most out of their games. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Don't Despair. I am today's host, Anastasia Steele, and joining me are Rob Iowari and Alexander. Say hi, Rob. Hello, everyone. Zach, Big Head Zach Gaskins. What is up? And Guillaume Corlal Tardif. Hi, everyone. Unfortunately, Matt and Scott are not able to join us for today's episode. And although I'm sure that many of our listeners are already quite familiar with Genesis, today's episode is a brief back-to-basics overview of the system and its core assumptions and base mechanics. Before we get into the meat of the matter, uh, what do y'all think is the most important thing that new players and GMs should know about this system before playing? What sets this aside from a lot of other RPGs? Zach? I think the most important thing to remember going into Genesis, apart from the fact that it is being branded as a generic system, is that being generic, it is not attempting to be a combat-focused system. Players are not expected to seek advancement through battle or progression in, in training. Uh, while they, their characters may grow and develop, uh, that may get rewarded by staying out of combat, or they may be playing settings where combat just simply isn't a priority. And the benefit of the uh, utility of Genesis is that it can handle all of those situations equally well. That's very good. Um, what do you think, Rob? Um, I think like Zach said, a lot of Genesis is the emphasis is on the story wherever you want to take that. If if it's uh, something where you want to have the more social and political kind of game, or you want it to be a horror where maybe none of the characters really do combat so much as they're just trying to solve puzzles and survive, whatever instances, it is very easy to adapt the mechanics where you need them or simply use them straight out of the box as they are just to tell your story. And Guillaume, what do you think? What sets Genesis apart from other systems? I will say the fact that the GM is not opposing the players. In many games, uh, you're going to have your players trying to overcome all the challenges they uh, they are facing and they will upgrade trying to get better just to fight down all the creatures and enemies that the GM is throwing at them. But in Genesis, the GM is mostly just like another player. Sure, they are the judge for the rules and they are coming up with a scenario, but they're mostly neutral, if I may say, because they are contributing the same way as the players for the story because the players have control over the story with narrative elements. And it's more flexible than in the it's more flexible than a system like, let's say, D&D, where the rules are more strict and the gym is, even though the gym's goal is not to kill the players, well, the kill the characters, he's still like trying to oppose the players. But in Genesis, I think it's more just like we, everyone's just trying to, to make up a good story. 
Yeah, I agree completely. Genesis definitely gives power to the people, so to speak. Um, players have significant input and in, you know what in the results and in interpreting the results of their dice rolls and an ability to directly influence the narrative in other ways. So um, the centerpiece of this system is the narrative dice system, uh, the funky, colorful, numberless dice, which allow a great, for a greater degree of variety in the outcomes of dice rolls than the traditional success-failure fa binary seen in a lot of other games. So these dice are labeled with six different symbols for success and failure, threat, advantage, triumph, and despair. Success and failure are fairly straightforward and self-explanatory. But what about these other systems? Um, what about threats and advantages and triumphs and despairs? The symbols are paired. So threats and advantages go together, as do triumphs and despairs and um, successes and failures. So um, who would like to explain threats and advantages? I would, said Zach. <laughs> Yep, so the threats and advantages represent the second axis of Genesis's uh, multi-axis dice system. Uh, and they represent um, momentum in the game that is kind of at an angle to the direct progress being made by each player on the tasks that they're attempting to complete. What they tend to represent uh, compared to other systems is the degree of success or failure, or the possibility that uh, one of the uh, other things that are related to the task being performed happens, such as getting a lucky shot off, or running out of ammo, or finding um, handholds and footholds in that sheer cliff that you're climbing, or uh, being knocked off balance and being set up for a combo attack by an, another enemy. Uh, they can be used both in a mechanical sense in that they can transfer uh, karma or good, good rolling benefits to other players in your team or um, hampering your enemies. And they can also be used to um, affect narrative decisions in the game, both by players and by the GM to add some uh, flavor to what would normally be a, I hit you, you hit me, and we'll see who falls first uh, kind of combat game. Yeah. And what do they look like? Uh, the advantages look like a an A symbol. They're sort of like a chevron. And the threat uh, looks like kind of like a, a, a targeting reticle with like little three lines through it. So already the uh, the, the nice ones look great and, and, and positive. And the negative ones look kind of fearsome. <laughs> okay. Um, how about triumphs and despairs? Rob or Guillaume? Triumph and despair are a little bit of both and then kind of obviously their own thing on the axis because the triumph uh, obviously standing for a success first, which can still be cancelled out by the failures. Uh, stands alone in that even though that part is cancelled everything else about it is not so if your net success is zero or a failure you can still have something 
above and beyond uh, exceptionally happen, such as if you were trying to lockpick a door, uh, you could fail, but with a triumph, oh, maybe you realize that it was never locked in the first place. You just assumed, or it was a case of, oh, look, the window's open over there. It, it allows you to just introduce maybe almost story point level something that can benefit you uh, in lieu of spending that story point and can still let you make the story go forward. In the inverse, uh, the despair, same thing. You can you can cancel out the failure portion of it with enough uh, success, but on the other side of that, something uh, detrimental either directly towards your goal or uh, kind of diagonal from your goal can still come along and cause new complications Maybe you did pick that lock, but as you did, a uh, patrol that you didn't realize was on schedule is now just rounded the corner and see you with your lockpicks out of the lock. The, the triumph symbol is only on the yellow dice, and it is a circle with the success uh, starburst in it. Uh, the despair is similar to the threat, and the uh, failure, incorporating the failure within, and then similar to the threat. Uh, targeting reticle type look um, and that only appears on the red dice yeah in game terms i feel like a lot of people are tempted to interpret a triumph as a critical success and a despair as a critical failure but they're not quite the same in many ways they're like a more powerful version of an advantage a more powerful version of a threat you can still fail with a triumph and succeed with the despair and i think guillaume had something to add uh, yes, Guillaume? What's cool about Triumphs and Despair is that it adds other possibilities to the same check. So, because since advantages and threats cancel each other, adding Triumphs and Despair, and they don't cancel each other out, you can have a check, like let's say you're, you're lockpicking a door, you could have a success, then added with threats, and then a Triumph. So you have like more than just two different uh, effects on the same check. So it, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool because you can get all funky results with with, with these with these with these unique symbols. Mm-hmm. And yeah, lastly, this as we've discussed before, the success is a little starburst, and it's pretty straightforward. If you have at least one success as a result of any of your skill or combat checks, it means that you succeeded. And a failure is a little X. Successes and failures cancel each other out. And if there are more failure, if there are only failures left or nothing at all left, and then, you know, as a result of a dice pool, your character fails their task. So now that we have covered the symbols, let's move on to the dice themselves. Just as there are six symbols, there are six dice total. There are light blue and black six-sided dice green and purple eight-sided dice, and yellow and red 12-sided dice. So the positive dice, the dice that are on the side of your characters that have the success, advantage, and triumph symbols on them are the blues, the greens, and the yellows. And the black dice, the purple dice, and the red dice are the negative dice. Let's talk about the positive dice first. 
Would one of you like to please like to explain the ability dice, the green dice? Okay. So starting with the positive dice, if you first look at the green eight-sided dice, which is the ability dice, basically it's your character natural ability to 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 achieve such a thing. So even untrained, your character is as a level of possible success in order to do a task. So let's say your character has an agility of, I don't know, three. So you're going to roll three ability dice when you're performing a skill which is based on agility. So even untrained, like if you're firing a gun or doing some coordination check to, let's say, swing from a rope or something like this. So you're going to roll these ability dice just because you have some level of agility. When you're going with proficiency dice, it's because you are trained in something. And what do the proficiency dice look like? Uh, The proficiency dice is the 12-sided yellow dice. And that's the only dice that features the triumph symbol. So the only way to have that positive epic result is by being trained into that skill, unless you're using story points, but we're going to see story points later. The Proficiency dice not only have the triumph symbol, which is super cool, plus the odds are better of getting successes on it. Because all the dice, well, uh, the, the ability dice, the proficiency dice, the even uh, on the um, negative side, the uh, challenge dice and the, the um, difficulty dice have one blank face. The fact that the proficiency dice is a 12-sided dice, you have less chances of scoring a blank. So. Basically, the better you get at something, like uh, by investing skill rings, you're going to roll more yellow dice. So you're just better at do getting successes, advantages, and the possibility for triumph. Okay. Um, how about the blue die, the boost die? The boost dice is a circumstance bonus. So let's say you're doing something. So let's say, I don't know, you're... you're you're trying to sneak your way pa- passing guards for entering a military base or whatever. If you have some circumstances that is playing in your favor, which is outside of your character's natural ability or skills, you're going to get these boost dice. So the boost dice are the six-sided dice, and uh, they only feature successes and advantages. Mm-hmm. And in this example, you could have a bonus on your stealth check because let's say you're wearing camouflage or it's dark so it's harder to see you. So the GM can just call uh, to have one or more boost dice for the circumstances of the check. All right, excellent. So let's move on to the negative dice. Zach? So um, the negative dice uh, represent the opposition to any particular task that you might be performing. Uh, whether it is something that just is sitting there waiting to be attempted or whether it's a uh, an opponent or an adversary that is actually stopping your progress. The purple dice represent the innate difficulty of the task you're attempting to perform outside of any context or circumstances. The red die represents, uh, that's called the challenge die, um, and that gets used when the opposition to your task is um, known, it's being opposed by something active, or when the consequences of failure 
could be dire, such as if you are walking a tightrope between two buildings, or if you have a gun with a limited amount of ammo, or uh, when you have are using arcane magic that has a tendency to rip open a hole in the fabric of the universe, things like that. Um, the red die is the only way that you'll get the despair result. Uh, and the GM loves it because it gives him plenty of opportunity to throw weird and crazy complications into your story, uh, which should honestly be embraced by players because it makes for really interesting collaborative storytelling. The, uh, the black die is the uh, counterpart to the blue boost die, and it represents uh, circumstantial penalties. It's dark. You are blind. You're sick. Uh, you just got your, uh, you just got the wind knocked out of you, uh, or you you have some sort of magical curse placed upon you. Uh, and the tendency of the black dice are to, while they can give you more failures, they are definitely better at giving you more threat. So that even if you are very skilled and, and innately talented at your task, the black dice will increase the chances that complications arise from your attempt. Excellent. So um, I would like to add that not all skill checks will even feature negative dice. Some tasks are very simple, such as catching your breath after a combat. Like there is no opposition to those rolls. You just assemble your dice pool based on your abilities, based on your skills. Yep, that's the simple. And you still mm -hmm. have a chance to fail at it. Yeah, if you draw a blank. Mm -hmm. And many times uh, when IGM and I see someone getting a, uh, a net zero success, as long as the thing they're doing isn't under pressure or um, a lot of, uh, you know, a limited amount of time, what it usually represents, and this is not this is not in the rule book, but it's sort of a, a house interpretation of no successes, is uh, that they didn't fail at the thing they were doing, but it's going to take them more time, and they have to reattempt it. Mm -hmm. So, um, how do we determine the difficulty of a task? Now that we've talked about simple things, um, Rob, can you please explain that? Uh, depending what it is, um, if it's opposed, it will be determined by your opponent's corresponding uh, characteristics and skill ranks. Uh, an example would be if you were trying to intimidate somebody with the coercion skill, oftentimes that could be um, opposed either by the person's willpower and uh, their discipline skill. So in that case, that's where you may see uh, red dice pop up more frequently than uh, just spending story points. Uh, otherwise, for difficulties, combat has a lot of set difficulties based on range. Uh, your melee is always going to be a base of two purple dice. At ranged uh, increments, it starts at one purple from short and every range band after that adds another purple up to uh, extreme range, which I believe is four purple. Um, after that, 
uh, various checks. Uh, the average is a two purple, uh, hence why they call it average in the core book. There is obviously uh, the easy ones where it's it's just something minor. You're you're looking for a particular food in a supermarket. You know you you want to find a can of soup. Well, unless it's been picked over because it's the apocalypse, you may not even need to roll. Uh, but you know as it gets harder, trying to heal specific criticals or heal someone's wounds if they're extremely injured it starts going up and up and uh, thankfully the core rulebook has a very good chart that can set you on the right path until you start to get a feel for it you can gm discretion at times incorporate a red if the situation definitely seems like something is more dire and maybe it's not necessary that you need to spend a story point Though oftentimes the easiest way to simply incorporate a red would be to use a story point and explain why you're using it, such as you're trying to pick this lock. It is, you know, it's very limited time. And if it goes wrong, maybe it's an electronic lock in a future setting, you could alert the entire base to your being there. So you want that chance of the despair to make the players on edge and potentially get some sort of extra interesting uh, story aspect that you can then play on and have them have to react and adapt to. Or like what if it's uh, in a fantasy setting and you're disarming a trap? Failure on the disarming role just means that you can't seem to get it undone safely, but rolling a despair means the trap goes off. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, Genesis has a very simple difficulty scale for tasks. It essentially goes from 0 to 0 to 5. So 0 meaning, you know, it's a simple check. It does not require any negative dice to 5 being a formidable check, a near impossible die, uh, a near impossible challenge that that requires 5 purple dice and has a massive chance of failure and threat. Although there is technically the sixth, uh, sorry, the seventh level, which is called impossible, which if the number of difficulty dice would be six or more, Mm -hmm. you can't even attempt it unless you spend a story point first, and then it is a five difficulty dice check. So don't ever say, don't ever say the GM doesn't let you roll because the rules say they can let you roll. They're just going to sit there and watch you fail miserably or maybe pull it out of your butt who knows and then the caveat of that is that you cannot spend a story point to improve your pool as well because you've already spent it to gain that role well now that we are talking about story points that is the the second most important core aspect of the system so um story points what are they guys Story points, in essence, are the story control, the momentum measurement of the system. Uh, Many role-playing game systems uh, these days have something like that, uh, whether they are adversary tokens or inspiration or luck points or style points. Essentially, what they do is they allow the players to 
bank their karma, so to speak, and to, at the right moments, use it to either give their uh, dice roll some extra oomph, some extra motivation. Or specifically in Genesis, they are also used to trigger certain very special abilities or talents that the character may possess. But most importantly, the one that I would love to emphasize, and I can't emphasize enough, is they give the players temporary story control. Still with GM approval, but they get to literally say what happens next. And barring something incredibly selfish or absurd, the uh, the thing happens. So say um, so say when if you have uh, if you're in the dungeon and you have this uh, this cliff that you want to rappel down and you're like, I wish we had rope with us. It's not in my inventory. Rather than just sit there and nothing happens and the then the party can't advance, you can spend story point to retroactively say, that's why I got rope at the general store before we left the town. Or if you're stuck trying to get past a keypad and you're like, and you ask the GM, is there something in this room that would give me a clue as to what I should be doing to get, you know, to get into the next room? And the GM will look at that story point pool and smile and ask the players, I don't know, is there? And when, when, players, when players see that for the first time, when they, they experience that, the light, you know, the fireworks go off in their head and it's just a great feeling. I'd like to add about the narrative use of story points. Sometimes I refer to them as ex-boyfriend points. You're going to have to explain that one. <laughs> yeah, and the reason for that is um, so you can use them to introduce narrative elements into your game as a player. So one of the first, one of my first narrative uses was in uh, actually even before Genesis when we played um, Star Wars RPG and story points are called destiny points. But we were on my character's home world trying to get through customs and I decided to spend a destiny point to make the customs official that was like scanning our stuff my character's ex-boyfriend who is still in love with her. <laughs> so. And then the GM spent his story points to say that we broke up in a really ugly and messy way and that complicated our lives immensely. <laughs> a lot of times I also uh, refer to them as either Bill and Ted points or Guy Ritchie points, mainly because those movies tend to feature just-in-time deus ex machina moments such as Bill and Ted go, remembering to go back and get that thing that they needed just in time so that the cage can fall on the, on the bad guy. Or um, when Billy Ocean is being questioned by the owner of the casino and he immediately explains all of these things that they set up in advance and you had no idea that they had planned it, but that was the moment to narratively inject it into the story. As in, how did you manage to get by the laser tripwires and uh, the three, you know, the, the vault combination and such? And here's my story point, and I'm going to tell you exactly how I did it. Mm -hmm. So, um, Rob, do you only the players use story points, or does the GM use them as well? It's a back and forth currency that uh, 
both sides of the table get to use. As one uses it, it then goes over to the other side of the table. And always, or typically, depending if you house rule it or not, will start as one player story point per player at the table and one for the GM. Uh, if you have a small enough group, I do believe the core book mentioned give two per player if you're if you're exceptionally small group like two players or so yeah one thing i would like to add is that um sometimes in my experience like players especially newer players are hesitant to spend story points just because they end up in the hands of the gm and there is that latent latent fear that the game master is going to try to kill us and you can hoard your story points. You can just not spend them. But I would encourage not doing that because complications are fun. Complications are interesting. And Genesis is, above all, a collaborative system, not an adversarial one. That's true. But there are a few points where hoarding them could uh, benefit you. If you look in the extended area of the core, I believe if you're running um, noir-style games, they do suggest that. If a session ends on a cliffhanger and the uh, party has more than half the points, mm -hmm. they could spend all of them at the end so that they know how they're getting past the cliffhanger at the start of the next session. And that's quite good. So now that we've covered the basics of dice and story points, um, I would like to actually return to the dice and ask y'all, how do you construct a dice pool? How do you determine what you need to roll? First off, uh, you for the player side, you determine what is the skill that is being used to overcome this task. The skill is keyed off of a particular characteristic. So you're going to have two numbers in play. You're going to have the value of the characteristic and the value of the skill in particular. Um, the larger of the two numbers tells you how many green ability dice you start your pool with. The smaller of the two numbers tells you how many of those green dice are upgraded, and upgraded is with a capital U because it's an official term, how many of those green dice are upgraded to the much, much sweeter yellow proficiency dice. So say you had, um, say you're taking a shot at someone with a pistol, which is a ranged skill. Ranged skill uses the agility characteristic. If you have an agility of three and you have two ranks in that ranged skill, the three means you will start with three green dice. And then the skill ranks of two in ranged means you turn two of those green dice into yellow dice. So your final pool before applying boost dice for situationals is uh, one green die and two yellow dice. Yeah. Story points can be used to upgrade the rolls either on the player's behalf or the GM's behalf. To turn a green dice into yellow dice, and purple dice into red dice. You can even use a story point when the GM is rolling to insert some sort of narrative uh, problem that the enemy has to face that causes their difficulty dice to upgrade to uh, challenge dice. Mm. Which means you can wait, watch as the GM rolls a despair and you, the players, get to come up with a great idea of how they screwed up. <laughs> Yeah, actually, so let's move on to interpreting dice rolls. Well, in, in Genesis, the GM doesn't carry the responsibility for interpreting rolls on their shoulders. It's divided between players and the GM. 
So, um, Rob, can you please explain which part of the dice rolls do the players determine? Uh, you mean the result of? Yes. So normally it's whenever they're rolling any sort of check. What I find easiest is quickly matching your successes against your failures, just removing them from your entire tally, and same with your threats and advantages, just simply removing them from the table uh, or wherever you've got your dice for reading your pool, and then adding up what is left over. Keeping in mind, if you have triumphs or despairs, that you keep them in your pool, even if you've cancelled out the failure or success portions, respectively, so that you can properly determine once you see how many successes or failures you have, you now know the degree of success or failure your check was. Then you can look at your advantage and threat, know how good or poorly other things are going in regards to what you achieved or did not achieve, and then finally resolving your uh, triumph or despair, seeing which way those can also hamper or aid you in what you were trying to achieve. An example being, I'm shooting my rifle at long range at an enemy. They have adversary one, they're wearing armor. So my two yellow, one green chat, I've aimed so I have a couple of blue. Roll everything out. I see, oh good, I didn't get any despair, didn't get any triumph, but I have two success left over an advantage. I can see where that goes. I've damaged him. I can do whatever I want with that advantage within reason of narrating, giving an ally a boost, or uh, some sort of minor detriment to the enemy. Maybe shooting him also caused some strain or something. Not significant, but obviously not nothing either, just for one uh, advantage. Okay. And which part of the dice roll does the game master narrate? Uh, they would narrate the negatives once everything's all added up. If it is their, uh, if it is the player role, if it's their role, they will narrate their positives. So, in the same event, if player rolled and managed to fail the shot, then obviously the GM, your shot misses. If there was still advantage, the player would get to decide what that is. With threat, maybe the shot went wide and did something that now uh, works against the players uh, for that moment, whether it's you shot a lock and now your door's closed, or whoops, you shot out the lights, they all have night vision while you guys are shooting blind in the dark. Okay, Guillaume, um, do you have anything to add? Actually, not really. I think it, it's really telling all the information about uh, who's rolling, uh, who's interpreting the symbols. Uh, well, well, another thing maybe we can add to this is that uh, when a, a player is rolling the dice and they are to interpret their their positive symbols, if they are if they don't have any idea of how to spend these advantages, uh, of course every player at the table, even even the GM, can contribute to suggest ideas of what these symbols could be spent on. So it's it's not like it's not falling on the players, the active player's shoulders to interpret all the pool. If they are lacking ideas, they can always call for help. 
Yeah, it's a very collaborative effort. Yep. All right. When I explain this to, to people, I, I tell them that there's no other system I've played where the collaboration on every role is so complete. Like, even if it's not, like I see in other, I see in other games where when it's not your turn to make an attack or to roll the dice, some people just go straight to their phones and they zone out. Genesis, that doesn't happen because everyone is encouraged to help the player in question determine the uh, the actual uh, you know, outcome of the dice result. I mean, it's still their decision to make, but it just encourages people to contribute to that thought process. Like like well, you're brainstorming at, at a meeting at work. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And the same goes for negative symbols as well. Let's say you're, you're, you're having that, I don't know, that adversary, so it's the, the GM's turn, and they're rolling a, a despair. Yes, sure, it's the DM's job to actually come up with the result, but players can do suggestions as well, because after all, it's a co- collaborative uh, storytelling, so maybe a player has a good uh, or funny idea on how a despair or a threat or whatever could be spent on. So even if it's all back to the GM to call the shot, everything is participating in this. Okay. I'm surprised in the number of times that my players have rolled despairs they tend to choose even worse ideas than i would and i just go with it because they feel they deserve it (laughs) it's great yeah all right so now that we've covered the basics i think it's time to move on to character generations and i think the best way to talk about character generation is to kind of show how it goes So, for example, my friend is starting a fantasy game in Genesis. And um, I want to make a social sort of character, you know, like a noble woman who's really good at um, talking to people and being charming, maybe not so good in combat. I have my concept kind of squared away, but where do I start with the mechanical um, parts of it? Archetype. Archetype. All right. So um, what's an archetype? So the archetype, uh, when you're selecting an archetype, you're gonna, it's coming with a, a base set of characteristics. So all your six characteristics, brawn, agility, intellect, cunning, willpower, and presence have a set value depending on the archetype you're, you're taking. In addition to characteristics, the archetype uh, sets your basic wound and strength threshold uh, as well as your starting experience so depending on the archetype you're choosing you're gonna have how many experience points you have to spend in increasing your character then you're gonna have most of the times you're gonna have starting skills so each archetype is gonna start with generally one skill rank in a specific skill and normally you're gonna have another ability that is unique to that archetype that you cannot get through skills or talents or whatever so each archetype is setting um it's basically kind of the background of the character like where the character is coming from you're gonna you're gonna have archetypes uh, general archetypes that are all humans Uh, so you have different kind of humans so in this case you will have probably to go with the aristocrat archetype so it's uh, because it's fitting that noble character you want and you also have the some kind of alternative to archetypes is uh, choosing a species which you see 
in settings like fantasy where you have orcs, elves, dwarves, and other stuff than humans. So I am looking at the noblewoman archetype or the aristocrat on page 39 of the Genesis Core rulebook. And her characteristics, I noticed most of them are rated at two, which is average for um, skills characteristics and everything. But she has a brawn of one, so a strength of one. She's not very physically capable. And a presence of three. So she is very socially apt. She's very charismatic. And I quite like that. Interestingly, most archetypes start with only a very tiny variance between their values. Unlike in other systems where you typically start with something like cranked up. Say, for example, in D&D, where you've got like a stat that's 16 and, and, and like you barely have anything that is lower than a 10. Uh, this game definitely trying to kind of normalizes things and says, well, you've from from the base level, you have one thing that you're slightly better at and one thing that you're slightly worse at. Some of that is uh, due to the, the idea that they want to give more power back to the player in how they customize their their characters' uh, characteristics, uh, especially when you're dealing with a fantasy world where you're dealing with uh, different species. Uh, we're we're seeing a trend in the, the hobby where we're getting away from broad brushing all members of the species with certain uh, physical traits. Um, and this helps that by basically putting the, giving those points back to the player and saying, if you want to make a smart orc, there is nothing that says you can't. Um, you have plenty of points to spend that with. That's good. So now that I've decided that my noblewoman is going to be an aristocrat, um, it is time for me to choose a career. Rob, can you please explain what careers are? How do they affect my character and how are they different from classes? So rather than a class which basically locks you into a set path when you look at uh, something like a rogue in Dungeons and Dragons or any number of other systems that use the same kind of uh, tropes, uh, the career is more of a starting theme as to what sort of skills that character is more likely to have picked up. It gives you eight different uh, career skills. Uh, is usually named something, again, similarly like thief or maybe similarly, it could be like noble, where uh, it's a grouping of skills that are thematically appropriate to that name. So Noble may have uh, knowledge skills. They're probably going to have several so social skills, things like uh, charm, possibly deception, coercion, maybe a combat skill, uh, and probably a few general skills that would fit that theme, like a, uh, probably you know perception or, or things like that, where it's their early focus. You're going to get four free skill ranks uh, that you can spread amongst your career skills. Whenever you want to raise those skills during leveling or during creation, it is only five experience per rank uh, going up by the multiplied, or sorry, five experience for the first rank, then multiply by the rank you're going to for the next one. So five times 
the second rank is now 10 experience, five times third rank, 15 experience, and so on. All the other skills you can still buy into at any point. It is simply going to cost you five extra experience per rank in order to do so. So something outside of it is now 10 experience at rank one, and so on and so forth. Um, it doesn't lock you into any sort of uh, talent choices. You you can build your character any any direction you want outside of those are your eight career skills that you start with, um, allowing you to to simply buy them a little bit cheaper with your experience when you spend it. Okay, yeah, it's kind of a bit of a it's a bit of a path of least resistance for a character. Like somebody who has been trained as a musician is going to find it a lot easier to learn the skills related to music, like performance and stuff like that. Exactly. So my noble woman is going to be socialite from page 41 of the core book. They have a lot of social skills like charm and deception and a lot of skills related to um, being kind of shrewd and keen-eyed. like. Um, Perception and vigilance. So that seems to fit my character concept pretty well. One thing players should look for when picking up a carrier is if they look at their archetype, in this case, the aristocrat, you're starting up with a prison score of three. When you're looking at your carrier skill, you shall check if you have at least some of these skills linked to that characteristic. So, you know, you, you kind of make a good choice there. So, the socialite as a the charm and cool and negotiation carrier skills. So all those trees are linked to the prison's characteristic, which starts at three. So it's a good choice for that archetype. Yeah. Uh, she's going to be really good at talking. Mm -hmm. and the streetwise is interesting on the socialite because that, that skill tends to represent um, the ability to stand out in a crowd if you want, or to blend in with a crowd and to get the read the uh the pulse of any particular culture that you happen to be in okay well now that i have my uh career and my archetype kind of squared away i still have a fair amount of starting xp so about 100 that i can spend on additional skill ranks on improving my characteristics and on talents and i would like to focus on the latter because that's another very important aspect of the system so what are talents talents represent kind of the extra special traits and morsels that really cause a character to stand out when compared to other characters that have the same archetype and have the same career you know most of the time if you're you're spending just to get really good uh, dice pools. That's one way to go. But it's going to mean that your character is just going to rely on really good dice pools. But in terms of flexibility and versatility in how they interact with the narrative system, the talent system is really where that's at because that's where you get into what other game systems would call feats or stunts, special moments where your character can do something outside the normal rules. Yeah, for example, there is a talent called Scathing Tirade, which is one of my favorite talents in the entirety of Genesis. And it's basically insulting somebody so hard 
that they actually take strain damage from it, like it stresses them out. Many of them also revolve around specific combat tactics, such as if you're being a defensive fighter, you're really good at dodging. If you have weapon training, if you know how to use that weapon more defensively, or um, if you have a particular way of approaching combat, such as dirty tricks or being being a finesse fighter versus just overpowering someone with your brawn. These are things which tend to either make certain activities cheaper uh, resource-wise or let you substitute uh, more favorable characteristics for certain uh, skill checks based on uh, your particular experience. Uh, the one, I, the one I love referring to, I think, is uh, I think there's one called painful blow, or um, something along those lines, which basically lets you use your cunning instead of your brawn on a melee check, which I interpret to mean uh, you're aiming for their uh, your sensitive bits, <laughs> <laughs> squishy bits. Yeah, um, some talents also have a more narrative application. So, for example, there is one in the Android book. It's a very small, you know, 5XP talent called Deep Pockets. <laughs> and it just means that you have a bunch of plot-relevant junk rattling around in your pockets. Obviously, you're not going to have, uh, you know, the key card to the high-security building you're supposed to infiltrate. But, I don't know, maybe you have, like, a picture that's relevant to something. Maybe you have, like, some kind of trinket that's plot relevant, but not plot breaking, if that makes any sense. Or a multi-tool. Yeah. As a final note on talents, some of them do require story points to use. They don't cost strains and they don't cast strain or they don't cost actions, but you do actually need to have a story point. Yep. We probably need to cover real quickly um, the recommendation about how to spend your starting experience. And yeah. why why going heavy on characteristics can be good, and why people may choose not to, and I think both are valid. So there's this. Uh, it says in the core rulebook that you'll want to spend the majority of your experience points uh, at the beginning on characteristics. The main reason they say that is because you don't get to do that after character generation, uh, which means that your core characteristics will not improve except through some gear or cybernetic implants or genetic modification uh, that happens in game. And there's only one tier five talent that lets you increase one of your characteristics. I personally think that if you spend all of your starting experience on characteristics, that's great if all you want to do is roll a lot of greens real quick. I personally feel that if you, uh, if you make sure to pick up a couple talents and make sure to get some of your skill ranks uh, going, uh, that's going to lead to rolling yellows more often, which means you get more triumphs. And triumphs are just so sweet. Triumphs are the sweetest. Okay, so now that we've, now that we've kind of created this character, we cho we've chosen her archetype, her career. Let's say that I have chosen to improve her presence further to four so that she's really good at talking but not much else. Now we need to calculate some of our derived characteristics. So for example, how much punishment can she take in a fight? How long is it until she gets stressed out? How much can she carry? 
those things. Would one of you please like to explain how wounds work? All right. So uh, wounds in this game are most often compared to hit points in other games. Uh, it's the most obvious comparison. It makes sense. Then it's the idea that if you take enough physical damage, then you pass out, you start bleeding to death or whatever. One thing in this game that's very important to know is that you are not counting down. You are gaining wounds. And when you exceed your wound threshold, that is when you drop in the fight. A lot of people like to treat wounds as hit points. And I personally feel that they need to take a step back and realize what's going on here in that wounds in Genesis do not represent a direct correspondence to your health. What they represent is your, is your ability to withstand pain and agony before you submit. Because taking a lot of wounds in this game doesn't kill you. Getting injured a bunch can kill you. And having your entire party out of action is what can kill you. It's very hard in Genesis compared to other more combat-oriented games to actually die. But it is much easier to be very, very injured for a very long time. And the game wants you to enjoy the thrill of never being fully healed and always having to deal with that one bad leg uh, giving you problems when it really shouldn't. Yeah, and wounds are calculated by um, adding a number that is specified in the archetype that you've chosen for your character to your brawn. So, for example, the uh, go back to her. She's starting at the at ten. Yeah, so she starts 10 at brawn. ten. Ten plus brawn. So I did not increase my brawn at all. So she would have eleven a wood threshold of eleven to start with. But, and a strain threshold of um, twelve, if I'm correct. So much probably explain what strain is. Uh, Rob, would you like to take that? Uh, so strain uh, is uh, first calculated by your archetype and your willpower, but then how it works is, I believe, is also counted up. I know a lot of my group often will count everything down just because they're used to how hit points work, but strain is more your mental... Not, it's the stresses the non-physical stresses that your body can handle. So uh, being attacked with scathing tirade, casting magic, it, it's, it's like your energy reserves um, and your, your mental reserves for the day. It, uh, it's a lot more fluid than wounds. Uh, obviously, uh, wounds only come back through either proper healing or rest, but... Uh, they come back much slower, whereas strain, you recover it at the end of any encounter. You can roll to recover, either based on your cool or your discipline skill, um, typically your choice. Uh, additionally, strain when you rest for the night, fully recovered by the next morning. Uh, strain is also what fuels all of your magical abilities, or rather your spell casting when you are uh, a magic user and is also what allows you to take a second maneuver uh, during combat when you have already taken a maneuver 
and have not downgraded your action. It's it's kind of meant to be this ebbing and flowing. It, it, it gets spent, you get tired, but then something happens in the moment and your advantages can fill you with renewed energy and it keeps going back and forth to keep you in the fight or potentially leave you lying unconscious on the ground because you have pushed your body far beyond its normal uh, limits. I like to use the phrase mentally and emotionally compromised. Not necessarily unconscious, but just cannot function. Mm -hmm. Literally can't even. Literally Mm -hmm. cannot. Unable to even. (laughs) That's how I feel when I come home from work. These children will be the death of me. Anyways, um, the another derived characteristic that's very, very important in this game is something called Soak. Guillaume, would you like to just explain Soak to us? The Soak is determined by your brown characteristic score. And it, uh, it, the equipment you, you wear is also going to affect this number. But basically, the Soak value of your character is how much they can take before actually suffering wounds. So if you have a a soak value of four and you're getting hit, let's say, by a sword and you're taking eight damage, then you're going to have to subtract your soak value from the damage. In this case, you will reduce the damage damage by four and you're just going to take up four wounds. So a high brown, uh, sorry, well, a high brown or heavy armored character is going to have a higher soul value and will be able to withstand more hits before getting down. So needless to say, characters that are more more likely to take hits, let's say the, the, the melee fighters or the one wearing big guns are going to, going to want to have a higher soul value than let's say your socialite because we can assume that she's not going to be the first target to be hit because when you have adversaries, uh, they want to, to to take down those that are heavy hitters. Yeah. All right. So I think that we are all pretty much ready to play. Uh, we know my character's um, archetype, her career. We spent our starting XP on skills, characteristic improvements, and her talents. We've talked about derived stats. And um, would anything? Would anybody like to add anything? I would like to say uh, uh, on that last point with regards to soak, um, there's this tendency for new players to look at armor and blow off gaining just one extra point of soak or feel that they have to shell out extra starting money to get the armor that gives them uh, additional defense. And defense is basically just automatic uh, black dice added to any attacks made against you. Soak, in my opinion, is much better than getting black dice because soak factors in every time you're attacked. I've seen people with six soak literally get hit multiple rounds and take no damage. Soak pays off dividends in the the life of your character. Amazing. So... As I take my socialite character through my friend's fantasy game, our game master gives us XP. And my character progresses. She becomes stronger, so to speak. So I'm 
one question I would like to ask y'all is how and when does a character progress? Do they become stronger? Do they become more talented? So, uh, contrary to other games, you don't get better because you, you killed stuff, basically. So, your, your character is improving by spending XP points, which are gained at the end of a session. So, I, if I remember correctly, the, the core book is suggesting 15 experience points per session, but there is that kind of community rule that says that you get about 5 XP points per, per hour of gaming. So when, when you're getting these XPs at the end of the session, that's when you spend these points on skills and talents, but you cannot do on characteristic, as we said before, since it's only during character creation. What's an, an, inter an interesting fact about this is that in many other games, let's say Dungeons & Dragons, for example, the fact that you're gaining XP, you're going to get better overall. Like you're going to attack better, you're going to have more skills, you're going to unlock other abilities, which will be like talents for Genesis. But in Genesis, actually, you don't get better just because you're getting XP. You have to invest in skill ranks or talents. or So let's say you're, I don't know, you're some kind of a fighter. You're using a sword or whatever. And you're not spending XP directly on melee skills or combat talents, even though you might have uh, gain 100 XP points if you don't actually spend these XP to be better, uh, to be a better fighter, you just won't get better. It's, it's you're, you're not improving overall. You have to select. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna improve that skill because I want my character to be better at doing that thing specifically, and the rest you won't get better. Another thing uh, that is interesting is that you, you're not actually improving how much successes you're gonna you're gonna get sure there may be a slight difference between the character creation and the hand game level but mostly when you're spending xp in skill ranks you're basically improving your huds of getting the symbols you want so you're you're improving your huds of getting advantages successes and all that but even from the start let's say you're in the case of your socialist uh you're rolling a charm charm check and you get four presents or you're actually rolling four dice, the best you can get is eight successes. If you're, all your green dice or yellow dice are rolling two success per, per, per face. But even at the end of the game, talents aside, if you have invested five ranks in charm skills, so you're rolling five dice, the maximum you can get is 10 successes. So it's just two above what you could do by the character creation. So you're improving your HUDs, but not that much the, the, the eye result you can get. You're not going to see substantial differences in, in the wound thresholds like you would see hit points in other systems or huge amounts of differences in damage that you can deal. What you are going to see is a lot more flexibility and a lot more versatility even in the career path that your character is taking, you'll get more opportunities to consistently roll more dice and get the results that you want more, more often. It also allows you to uh, start to, if you want, deviate 
from what your starting was. So if you started out as a socialite and you find that you keep finding yourself in these situations where you need to start dueling and fighting and, you know, uh, making a name for yourself in that sort of way, you can start to invest in that because you're not tied into a class or particular progression because there's there's nothing set it's yes it's going to take a little bit more experience to to go outside of what your your archetype and career helped you start with but you're not stuck any which way you just you keep going and if you're concerned about um having to spend a bunch of extra experience points on skills outside of your career a lot of times many settings will provide like mini careers as talents that you take that essentially give you one or two more of your skills to be classified as career skills. So basically just it, it cheapens that progression for that particular side career that you pick. Yeah, I think the the first one that comes to mind is a tier two called basic military training, which I believe adds uh, some combat skills to you. My socialite can just get like a gun or a crossbow if she wants to, you know, later down in the game, if talking doesn't work anymore. Or if she wants to become a, uh, uh, a gentle lady thief, you mm-hmm. know, basically someone who talks people out of, uh, into giving up the information on their most valuable possessions, and then she goes and steals them. I like that too. Cat burglar. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, I'm making Catwoman. <laughs> <laughs> I think that we should discuss combat and social combat very briefly before we move on to our Roll the Bones segment. Zach, would you like to provide us with a basic, very basic bare bones combat overview of how combat works in Genesis from initiative sure. to the types of actions we can perform? Sure, I can do that. So, um, like other systems, um, Genesis has initiative, which determines the order in which uh, characters and NPCs. Uh, get to take actions during structured encounters, which is kind of like the catch-all term for both combat and social. You basically roll a skill check with no difficulty, either for cool, if you were not surprised when the combat started, which is just basically determining whether you can uh, keep your cool, maintain your poise when when the proverbial is about to jump off. And, or vigilance if you were ambushed and you wanted to know just how ready you were for anything. Uh, based on the number of successes and advantages every person in the encounter gets, you organize them from high to low. But what's interesting in Genesis is that it gets rid of the whole problem of people who happen to roll low that one time having to wait for everything to happen before they get to take their turn. And in many ways, uh, a game as narratively interesting as Genesis wants people to come up with interesting, dramatic combats. So all of the slots that were generated by players can be taken by any player that hasn't acted yet that round. So it's kind of a, a more structured version of what some people call popcorn initiative, where you basically choose someone else who hasn't acted that round and they go next. So this one divides it up between the two teams. Uh, so basically, if the person uh, who really needs to go first can go first, and 
if, if someone wants to be able to go twice uh, back to back, they go last in the round and then maybe they go first in the next round. It's up to them how they do it. Uh, but that can set up for some great um, assists and some great alley-oops, to use the basketball term, uh, to make things work uh, without all of the need for like readied actions or I got to wait a whole turn for my thing to happen. So in terms of actually taking turns in a combat encounter, much like other systems, you get a move and an action and then a certain amount of flexible free actions. Uh, Genesis calls moves maneuvers because you can do more than just move with them. Basically allows you to get from one place to another place nearby, like from a room to room. It allows you to um, get engaged with another character for melee fighting. Uh, it can let you maintain concentration on a spell. It can let you aim. Uh, all those things that are not specifically the thing you are going to do that turn, but are in support of them. Action is literally performing a skill check, whether that is swinging the sword, which is melee, shooting a gun, which is ranged, or if you're going to try and use your uh, leadership skill to rally your side to getting uh, motivational bonuses, which is something that uh, I've seen groups like to use. So you get a move, you get a maneuver, you get an action, and you get what are called incidentals, which some systems call free actions. You can do as many of them as you want within reason. And the GM usually decides how many is too many. You can use your action to take a double move or double maneuver, or you can spend two strain to get a second maneuver on your turn. But you can never get more than two maneuvers in a single turn without the benefit of magic or some other thing. All right, very good. So one more thing to talk about in combat and structured encounters is range. And Genesis handles range in a very numbers light abstract way and that instead of having you know uh, distances measured in feet or meters or any other other kind of um, measurement unit we talk about range bands so somebody can be engaged with a character fighting them directly physically somebody can be in short range so basically within a stone's throw medium range a little bit further away long range and then extreme range, which is like sniper rifle range. Like if some within earshot, but not necessarily visible. And you also have the uh, strategic range as well. Yeah. So that's for... Which is mostly used for vehicles when you have... Uh, is it strategic? It is strategic. Well, yeah, strategic range. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's for vehicular combat, big guns, mortars, that kind of stuff. You fire the torpedo and then you wait five minutes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> All right. Secondly, let's talk. Let's talk briefly about social combat, which is another type of structured social encounter. Rob, why don't you explain that to us? For a structured social encounter, it boils down to things like, well, for video game example, uh, Phoenix, right, where it'd be a courtroom uh, setting or that kind of a negotiation setting where it's it's a it's like combat because there is the back and forth. You're you're relying on talents and you're trying to not necessarily whittle each other down through wounds and critical hits, but you are trying to whittle down each other's resolve through causing strain damage or succeeding so well that perhaps 
you have made it impossible for them to to at least argue their point often with uh with opposed roles rather than uh set difficulties that you would necessarily have to roll another uh, good example might be interrogation uh, situations where you need to get something out of this guy for information they want nothing to do with you nothing to they don't want to reveal anything under you know they they fear they're going to be harmed if they reveal anything so they have every reason to not and to try and resist you so you have this back and forth interplay between the roles but also your narration your discussion uh and your allies can come in and assist in different ways whether they are rolling uh because they're aiding you or not rolling to aid you but they're aiding you by assisted roles where you use uh the higher of the two skills and the higher of the two characteristics so you could have one player who has a very high presence and you could have the other who has a higher charm uh working together you would take the high presence you would take the high charm see how that sets your dice up and then you would roll the pool there and it would be like interplay of good cop bad cop or there's literally talents <laughs> called good cop bad there cop. is literally talents yes where that's sort of what they're for obviously where they 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 add setbacks or remove setbacks based on if you're playing the bad cop or the good cop and you're what you're trying to do at that moment it, it's it's a harder one for a lot of people to uh perhaps get a hold of compared to straight combat because not only does it require a little more uh creative thinking especially if you're trying to act or uh, role play it out a lot of systems obviously aren't necessarily as geared toward that where it's well, i want to negotiate with them okay diplomacy check you failed this is very much well i want to negotiate with them okay well how do you present it uh allowing you to use what you say in your attempt to give you boost dice or give you setbacks because you mentioned something that the person you're talking to actually finds very offensive maybe you said something about their mother maybe you're there's a language barrier and you're trying to work around that it has all these other levels where it is like combat but you're not at the same time something interesting with social encounters uh, if we compare to combat encounters so when you're in combat like you're fighting for your lives right so you, so everyone is actually participating in fighting of the the, the the enemy but in social encounters you might want to have your less skilled character not playing an active part in the encounter because if you look at the uh, spending uh, threat and despairs in social encounters uh, on page uh, 121, if you have a character, let's say like a, a rookie, they, they doesn't have they doesn't have any skills ranks in social skills, so they may end up with rolling a bunch of threats, and in this case, it may it may hinders the the party's efforts because. Which, with threats, you can, for example, accidentally reveal uh, the true goal, their true goal in the encounter. So, in this case, if you have your your noble woman trying to arrange a deal with some other rival noble or whatever, you don't want like the, the 
your your bodyguard trying to <laughs> to reveal information you're you're supposed to to keep secret. So in this case, yeah, you you want the other characters to be careful about what they were doing. Okay, excellent. So now that we um, have covered the basics, I would like all of you to offer a piece of advice to new players and GMs starting on their path through the world of Genesis. I would say when you're using story points, remember that they aren't just for upgrades on your roles. Definitely remember that the keyword from them, story points. They have so many applications, and it's just, it's so much nicer when you narrate what that point is doing, not just saying, I've got an upgrade or we have this. Well, my character thought ahead. I actually went to that shop. I grabbed what we needed. Or, you know what? There was that thing jingling in my bag. I always never really thought what it was, but hey, look, I've got what we need for this moment. And it uh, it really makes a difference and helps you keep in mind of your character, even with something that is a little bit out of character when it's coming up. You know, it's it's a meta thing rather than than directly an in character device that you're using. My advice for new players, new GMs, is don't be afraid of working together on every single role. Don't think of it as a game you're trying to win. Think of it as a story you are trying to collectively tell where the dice give you some light instruction as to how things should progress. And then you interpret them. Literally like reading chicken bones is what I call it. GMs, ask your players what they would like to have happen. Initially, they may be a little hesitant. You know, may not understand the power that they will that they now wield, but urge them along. And once they start seeing some of the possibilities, they're going to start running with it. And that will make your job a lot easier. That is definitely true. Um, I would like to add that my favorite way of using story points is to define minor NPCs, to establish relationships between the party and between the party and the world around them. So just going back to the ex-boyfriend example, he became a recurring NPC in our campaign. Like we called him all the time. And he was not supposed to become that, but because I made him my ex-boyfriend, all of a sudden like he was emotionally invested in the party and we were emotionally invested in him. So, yeah. And it's a far more interesting use of a story point than just upgrading your 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 check when picking a lock or something. Like you have a, a long-lasting effect for that story point, so that's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. I've done that with multiple NPCs, so I actually had two ex-boyfriends in that game. <laughs> they did not know it about each other. I was very, very careful to keep them apart from. You cannot have too much ex-boyfriends. <laughs> I tried to go for a third one, but the GM did not let me. <laughs> a tip I could give is, mostly for, for GMs, is to not over-prepare the adventure in the scenario because because of the nature of genesis the players may be going roads with story points that you you did not see coming so if you if if you prepare your adventure like if you have a, a dungeon or whatever a scene it may not uh, be it may not plays out as how you designed it so i just say be 
light on preparation. Like you have your basic idea of what what the adventure is going to be about, but do not go for every single encounters, every single okay, so they have two chores of going there and th that's gonna be the, the check for unlocking the door or whatever. So just don't over prepare. Like know your know know the rules, how to how to come up improvising a, a role on the go, but don't don't come up with too much preparation because it, you in the end you might have done half of the preparation for nothing. Or more. Or more. <laughs> All right. Anything else? Or are we pretty much scored away here? So let's get on to rolling them bones. All right, let's roll some uh, bones. Uh, I have my dice for this one. Come they came out of the jar. So today's roll them bones scenario is actually from Guillaume's Inquisition setting. And I'm going to write a, uh, to read the little blurb that he uh, prepared for today. So the small village of Morden's Hill has been recently plagued with mysterious deaths of livestock. The animals were found slaughtered in their barns and their coops overnight. After failing to solve the problem with uh, the aid of his own men, the local baron hired a monster hunter to put an end to the supernatural menace he suspects to be causing the massacre. Kobe, our hired monster hunter, has spent the day in the village gathering information about his target. He collected um, accounts from witnesses of strange sounds in the night, and um, he took stock of the damage the creature has done. Confident that he is ready to bring the fight to the monster, he is going um, into the woods, following its tracks, and he will attempt to find its lair. Kobe is going to make a survival check to find tracks that would guide him to the creature's lair. So it is going to be a survival check. Now, the survival skill is tied to cunning, correct? Uh, yes. Yep. Okay. And our man Kobe has a cunning of three. So that's three green dice to start off with. What is his survival rank, Guillaume? Uh, well, it wasn't defined, but let's say uh, let's say he's not that experienced yet. So let's give him one rank. Okay. So so far in Kobe's side, we have one yellow die and two green dice. What would you um, yep. what would you say the difficulty of this check is? He is going into the woods in the morning, so he's not. It's not very difficult to find things. So let's call it um, average. Yep, sounds good to me. Okay. Although. Do we, does the GM know if the monster is nocturnal or not? Hmm. I don't know, GM Guillaume. Do you know? Uh, well, I didn't come up with the details for that specific uh, encounter, so I was, I'm was, i open to ideas. <laughs> uh, well, the attacks did happen at night, so I think it's safe to assume that the creature doesn't really go out during the day. So I'm going to say that's going to be a black die because he, the tracks are not going to be very fresh. Yeah, and we may we might have other uh, complication, like maybe it was raining overnight or something like this. So you could have yeah another setback dice, for example. Yeah, or well, he did do some extensive leg work, leg work, and has his supplies. So that's definitely worth worth at least one boost to die. Uh, that okay. Yeah, totally agree. So our dice pool so far is one yellow and two green, and a boost on Kobe's side. 
two purple and a black on the monster side. And I'm going to spend a story point to upgrade the roll once, replacing one of the purples with the red. So is everybody okay with this? Um, what is the what is your justification for the red die? Uh, my justification is that the woods are kind of populated by other wild animals, and Kobe doesn't really know what he's tracking. He's fairly inexperienced, so there is a chance that he might mistake a bear track for a monster track. Basically, he's so far into the woods that help may not come. Mm-hmm. And also, it just might be a bear. Mm-hmm. All right, I have my bones. I'm going to roll the bones. And I think this time around, I'm going to roll once and then give everybody a chance to interpret the results their own way. Okay, let's see what we have here. Uh, uh, uh. Okay, so he has two failures and one advantage. So what could happen here is that the fact that he, he actually failed the check, he, well, he basically fails to, to find any tracks. Thing is that maybe while he's on the, he's on, on the hunt for that creature, um, maybe he will get some kind of vintage point or natural uh, cover he, he, he might use, or he may find a place to rest. Uh, taking a break while hunting, and he can benefit from the terrain he, he's currently had. So maybe there's a, a cavern or something he can take cover for later, or maybe the, the creature, since um, he did not find a creature, maybe the creature will find Kobe and he's going to benefit from from the environment. Okay, that's pretty good. Zach? Yeah, I mean, the failure pretty much just outright says he does not find the creature. But you did describe him as having uh, done a lot of work preparing for this hunt. Maybe he didn't get a complete good night's sleep because he's been up burning the midnight oil. And as a result, he has not recovered all of his strain. So perhaps the one advantage could be spent to allow him to take a break, get some fresh water from a nearby stream, splash it on his face try and wake himself up, and recover a point of strain that he has not uh, regained from being able to sleep well. Rob? Uh, so as everyone said, with two failure, I mean, that's that's a given. He, he has not succeeded in trying to track down this creature. Another option with his one advantage, though, uh, perhaps uh, he did not directly find tracks of it, but he has found he's not lost in any way, shape, or form. Like he still is on a trail that he knows where he is and how to get back where he needs to. So it's not necessarily fail uh, like a complete and utter failure where he's hopelessly lost. He just has not succeeded. He knows how to get back to where he started, and he could try again if he uh, if he more it takes his time and the role once more yeah like he he could leave uh, uh marks for going back out here later which might give him a boost for another survival check later i'm gonna say that yeah he doesn't really find the creature but with his advantage i think he found maybe a tree that had some claw marks on it and uh 
you know, in his apprenticeship, he maybe studied under a more experienced monster hunter that has taught him about the various types of cre supernatural creatures in these woods. And just based on these craw claw marks, Kobe is reasonably sure that the creature is a basilisk. He's not 100% sure. But maybe he learned something about this creature. He remembers what his old master taught him. I really love that idea. <laughs> like, now, now, from that point, he can prepare further for that deadly encounter, knowing what he's fighting again. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I have one. And, yeah? and it's just one advantage. So maybe this is a little over. But uh, say in uh, looking, he doesn't find the creature, but he finds uh, some of the scales shed by the creature, which uh, if he takes them back, he could either uh, use them for crafting something or maybe can sell to a um, a local apothecary for a small amount of, uh, of money. Yeah, I found some monster poops. Yep. <laughs> monster poops make a great aphrodisiac, so I... <laughs> Not sure about this. I sure hope his deception score is good to sell that one. <laughs> All right, so... We have rolled them bones. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for um, listening to our podcast. And thank you so much to our lovely voices for participating. And I think we're done here. That's it. Yep. Don't Despair is a member of the D20 Radio family of podcasts. Don't Despair is a podcast created by fans and is not affiliated with Fantasy Flight Games. The views and opinions expressed are that of their author and not of Fantasy Flight Games. Genesis and all related trademarks are owned by Fantasy Flight Games. The content of this podcast is owned by Don't Despair and is provided for entertainment purposes only. Don't Despair accepts no responsibility for any injury, dismemberment, or death resulting from the use of the information contained herein. Consult the doctor if fun lasts for more than four hours. The Don't Despair podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives, 4.0 International License.